3: 971 FM Talk Podcast. This hour of The Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts. Mark Reardon.
2: You know, politicians want to
4: force you to cover your face as a way for them to cover their own asses.
0: Mark Reardon. Does the president not know what's going on? I don't care...
3: If you think I'm Satan reincarnated.
0: The Mark Reardon Show is on
3: now.
5: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a Wednesday edition of the show, and I'm going to start with uh, how I lost another bet today, I think. If I would have placed this wager, I didn't actually place this wager, but had I placed this wager, let me welcome in my good friend Jane Duker. She'll be on the roundtable on Friday. I'll kind of set this up with her. Jane, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Fine. But, you know, Becky and I, we send money to Las Vegas every week until they legalize gambling here and we do these little <laughs> parlays with my friend Rick. And we, I was telling someone about this yesterday, we hit one for like 240 bucks back in October, and I don't think we've hit one since. So our record during the NFL season in college football is terrible. Now, if I would have included in my parlay that the next chief of police for the city of St. Louis was going to be a white dude, once again, I would have lost because I was willing to place that bet. And We didn't get that. Robert Tracy is the guy that was Mm -hmm. announced today. He was the police chief in Wilmington, Delaware. So what do we know about Robert Tracy? Because all these other candidates seemingly kind of dropped out. There were four finalists. Chief Sack, who was the interim, said yesterday he was getting out. What what happened here, Jane? What do you know?
6: Well, I mean, I think, um, um, you know, he has the new chief has a lot of experience in urban crime. So that's at least helpful. I mean, he has experience in New York, Chicago and um i don't know if you saw the press release that the city of wilmington did but they said that he reduced you know murders by 60 percent and so i mean he he presumably has um you know the experience um now does that remove the structural barriers um that will prevent him from doing what he needs to do to actually reduce crime i mean that's that's still there um so, you know, um, I want to be cautiously optimistic and say, OK, um, this means I mean, he, he talked about, you know, uh, how important it is to be a police officer and that he was going to have their back. And he said the right thing. Um, but, you know, will the structure allow him? Um, he was questioned about, um, you know, the, the number of police officers. And he said he wanted authorized strength, which, by the way, authorized strength now is 100 less because the mayor swept 100 positions like right when she got elected. But even if we could get to authorized strength minus 100, that would be great. The problem is you're going to have to pay cops to do that.
5: Right, let me stop you right there. When you say that, when you say authorized strength, explain that a little bit better so we're not losing people because I think I'm lost. Somewhere. Yeah.
6: Okay, authorized strength means that's what's budgeted for. These are how okay. many full-time police officers um, It would be authorized full strength. And what happened was as soon as she got elected, she took 100 officers off authorized strength. So, you know, um, but still, even authorized strength minus 100 would be a great goal. If yeah, we that's, a get there.
5: Forward, right? that, that's a that's move forward, right? That's a move That's a huge the move direction.
6: forward. But he needs the tools to be able to do that. You have to be able to recruit. You have to be able to pay people. I mean, right now, um, the pay gap between city and county and city and the municipalities and surrounding jurisdictions – is twenty thousand dollars?
5: Yeah, that's significant. That is significant. Let me play a little audio. Of what he said today on the topic of reducing crime.
6: Well, first thoughts: building community trust and also building the trust of your police officers, building the morale, making sure that uh, there's procedural justice, police legitimacy, internally within a police department, and they have to know what the plan is.
5: Okay, we're gonna get. You have to get used to the accent, Amen. right? We're gonna have to get used to the accent, though. That's my first takeaway. That's my like first hot take. Office. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm in an episode of Blue Bloods. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, how to turn criminals around. We can do things and work with those individuals to get them out of the life of crime. We can also put, bring group violence intervention in to try to stop them or actually give them options to get out of this violence. And for the ones that don't want to do that, then you know what? If they're going to cause harm to the community, we're going to pro- have to arrest them.
6: And But it's going to be a smaller percentage of arresting people and not arresting everyone to get those few. It's a very small percentage of persons committing most of the violent crime.
5: So we don't have dangerous communities we have a small percentage of dangerous people in those communities so the coverage so far has said here's reading from you know they had to get this in in the first or second paragraph it says robert tracy will become the next st louis police chief tracy the police chief in wilmington delaware was nationally recognized for reducing gun violence there but this is in the same paragraph you got to get in was criticized by city council members for racial tensions and lack of diversity in the department so do you know what he did to reduce violence was that highlighted today
6: Um, No, not really. I mean, people ask for specifics like what tool to use that previously that he thinks he could, you know, that he could apply here. And he said, look, I'm not I don't want to I don't want to start having that conversation until I've actually got embedded and started talking to people both within the department and in the community. Now, I I will say um, I I think I personally agree with him that, you know, 10 percent of the people are responsible for 90 percent of the crime. Yeah, we
5: hear that all the time. Right. Right.
6: Which, you know, which I think, you know, that may not be perfect, but it's pretty close. And so I agree with that. And numerous reporters asked him, what are you going to do about the prosecutor that won't prosecute? Basically. So, I mean, he says, you know, I've got a clean slate. I'm going to you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk with all of our partners in the criminal justice system. So I I think he's going to try to work with her because he has no choice. Um, but it doesn't do any good when the the police arrest people. There is 6,000 pending application of
5: warrants sitting there. 6,000?
2: Waiting.
6: 6,000? 6, 6, 6, cases.
5: Yes. Yes. Uh, so what what, it, what happened with Chief Sack, though? You know, I, I met him a, a week ago at the Jack Buck Awards, told him that I was rooting for him. I thought he did a great <laughs> job during the school shooting. Do we have any insight there as far as why he decided? Well, I mean, did he decide to pull his name right? out? Or did they, did they yeah, say you're not going to get the gig? Yeah,
6: my is... Yeah. No, I, I didn't think it was him. You know, he went to the town hall and no, I think he was trying for the position. I think he was told that it was going to be one of the other two.
5: Uh, all right. Well, I mean, don't I, know what happened I don't there. know why we hold out any hope that this is going to work based on, on the history here. But boy, we can hope and pray that. Oh, I want know. to.
6: I mean, and and if he's really allowed to do what he needs to do, that, that to me is the issue. It seems like you know, from what he said, he's saying the right things. And I hope that that's where he's coming from. Um, but will he be allowed to do what he needs to do? And, um, you know, she said she has full confidence. So let's go.
5: Let's go. We'll talk about it on the roundtable on Friday, Jane.
6: Yep. Have a good one. All right,
5: Take care. Thank you. On the um, some of the racial stuff, the Post-Dispatch has to highlight all that. I'll get to that a little bit later here this afternoon. But we're off and running here. We'll talk about that, obviously, on the roundtable on Friday afternoon. A little bit later on this show, as... Uh, I'm all friend I'm all gunked up today I don't know what it is. I can hear it. You know Dave Dave Klein said that he got the flu. Remember he was going to come in today and do Sue's news? From one
3: of his four kids. From one of his
5: yeah from one <laughs> of his kids and he said it was a bit of a rough go and I said did you get the flu? Sean he said he had gotten the flu shot but I'm just a <clears throat> you, know, you know the crud right now. Uh we got coming up here Daniel Schmidt who's at the University of Chicago. This kid's great. We've featured him before. He is being blasted by a professor at the University of Chicago. In connection with allegations that he made about this anti-white hatred he's seen on campus. They have a class that is specifically dedicated to that. So we'll get to that here with Daniel in just a little bit. Fred, I have to tell you what happened, though, last night and this morning because it was a little nuts. First of all, last night, went to bed, and I'm um, man, i so tired this week. I had a great workout at the MAC. I'm, like, tired, and I go to bed on time. Becky's asleep. I drift off, and then I hear activity. I kind of hear my dog going up and down from the bed, which is never a good sign. So the little terrier, Olaf, decided, I don't know what he got into, what he ate outside or something. We've gotten to the point, I think I've told you, no table food anymore. He starts, he he pukes on the carpet. He gets off the bed, and I'm like, oh, God. Okay, so that'd be fine, but then he does it again, and then he does it again, and then... He does it a few more times. I'm like, I, there's everywhere in the bedroom, and I'm starting to clean this up. Becky's asleep, and all of a sudden wow. she she wakes up. She's like, what happened? I'm like, well, Olaf has gotten into something. And, I mean, it was, you know, he's a little dog, so it was like, little, right. not, not to be too gross here. But good Lord, that was how I, you know, spent the night and trying to do the carpet, and then I get him into the bathroom, and I said, hey, he's got to stay in the bathroom. And then he didn't want that. He was whining and stuff like that. So this morning we wake up, and I think he's okay now, but I have no idea what happened. On Saturday, i got to back up a little bit because this is the other weird thing that happened. And you said you might have a story. I started to tell you this story this morning, so I want to see what the reaction is. I, uh, I think it was maybe Saturday or Sunday. It might have actually been Sunday morning. I go out to the garage. We have an attached garage. You know, you have the laundry room and you go out to the garage. I smell the faint odor of natural gas. And Alexa was with me. We were about to get in the car. I said, Hey, do you smell something funny? She goes, Yeah, it smells a little different. I'm like, okay. But it was, it was faint, and I wanted to trust, uh, I didn't know if I should trust myself. So Becky's got a good sniffer. She comes out, she's like, Yeah, I smell natural gas. I said, call the cleat. Or I still call the cleat. I guess it's <laughs> Spire now. I mean, right. how long has it been Spire? So she calls Spire. They come over. I was running an errand or something like that. By the time I got back, he was there, and start talking to the guy, he starts doing his test. You know, they got that wand thing, it can sniff out the natural right. gas. So they have a natural gas a dryer, they're trying to figure out if it's in the house, he goes downstairs, he got the water heater, the fireplace, nothing, let's check outside, I'm going to do my line test, blah, 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 all this stuff. It's like, I can't find anything. Comes back in, he kind of runs down. He's He's got a theory, I, I don't know if I can really share exactly what his theory was, but it involved maybe the meter outside, maybe something kind of wafted into the garage, right? So... He he leaves, and that's the last I think of it until this morning. So same thing. I go out to the garage. I'm about to open. I take my daughter to school most days. He gives us a little extra time to sleep in instead of taking the bus, and we're literally about five minutes from you know Stanton Elementary, so it's not a big deal. So I go out, and this time it's more overwhelming. The smell of natural gas is a little um, overwhelming, and I knew right away. I'm like, uh oh, we got to call Spire again. So we call Spire. They come over, and it's a it's a guy and. <laughs> It looked like it was a father son duo. I don't think it was. I think it was a kid that was learning. You know, he, uh-huh. he was, what do you call it? Like an apprenticeship or something right. like that. But it was a young, young guy. So he's with the guy and uh, they do the same thing. You know, they're running through it. And at one point he says to me, he comes into the house and he comes in the basement. He's checking out the hot water heater. And he says, well, he goes, it could be a dead mouse. And I said, could be a dead. He goes, I said, oh, okay. He goes, well, sometimes like a dead mouse, dead squirrel emits an odor like natural gas. And I thought, well, and he says, maybe it's in the garbage can or something like that. I said, well, we just took the garbage out and the recycling on, you know, this happened on the weekend and the re- the recycling and the garbage has been taken out since then. So I don't, you know, I'm not challenging you. You're the expert here, but that seems a little weird. Well, maybe it's, you know, stuck in a well, I don't know. In the attic, is there a squirrel in the attic? That was sort of the the thing that he came up with. So I call Ron Scheller. You know, he was just on the air a couple of days ago, the bat guy, and he deals with all this stuff. And he said that, yeah, the he and this is maybe where you're going. He said the opposite happened with him where he thought that or somebody thought that there was a dead animal smell because I guess dead animals do emit that odor. So he goes to check it out, and he found a propane tank that was leaking. He He could actually hear the hissing sound, wow. and that's what it was. But in this case... They laughed. I have no idea, really, what what's causing this. I do know at this point at least this didn't happen. The house is still there. And I told, I told Fred at one point this morning, yeah, I texted him, I said, if... Uh, <laughs> here's your
3: first, your first text to me this morning. If I don't respond to your future text, it might be because my house just blew up. We had a strong sense, a strong gas odor on Saturday. Fire came out, couldn't figure it out. It's back again, even worse this morning.
5: So, and I still don't have an end result. I don't know what to do. I don't know if, I guess I should go up in the attic and and see if I smell anything. But it doesn't smell like a dead animal at all. I mean, it is overwhelmingly very specific, like a natural gas scent. So, I'm so confused. Having smelled both, I think I could tell. But um, I had my son
3: a couple weeks ago. He's living in a big apartment building in um, Alexandria, or in Arlington, Virginia. Right. And he, you know, was texting us and he says, man, there's a dead mouse here somewhere in the house. Like we think it's in the kitchen. It just smells bad. I'm like, well, open the windows and try and find it and call maintenance people right. if you can't. So they did all that, could never find it. And he said, it smells horrible. And he kept, and then he called, and then the maintenance people said, we'll be there first thing in the morning. We're not coming out special right. for a dead mouse. Right, right, right. So they came out in the morning and it was a, a gas leak. <laughs> In their in their kitchen.
5: So again, like Ron so it said, was the it, was, opposite. it was the opposite. And they let that thing. That's right. Yeah, that's not good. But did he say at the time when he said it was maybe a dead animal? Did he say it smelled like natural well, gas? Well, I at
3: asked all? him. I asked him, "Does it smell like gas?" Yeah. And he said, "No, it smells like a dead animal." Wow, that's so. so well, you I, know, it look, does I gotta, work both ways. I, I guess. have to trust
5: that it does because I, I didn't. If I knew that, I didn't remember that. Here's the I didn't only. Either. Here's the only other thing that's because I always kind of think through these things. I try to. Like a detective. Like if you lose something in the house, or you may, you kind of right. reach step your trace. Is there anything that happened this morning compared to what happened the other morning? The only thing that it is, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it at all, is there was fog both mornings. Like hmm. this morning there was heavy fog. So is it coming from somewhere else and then kind of getting trapped? I don't know. This is just me playing, you know, Dr. Science. I know nothing about this, but it was fascinating. And, and I bet, I nothing, there's nothing
3: like your dogs bringing in a... Some sort of a smell. No, because rodent.
5: look, the in the the only smell that was in the actual house was in the laundry room, but there's no doubt it was coming from the garage because even in the car when I got in the car and I, you know, started the car and then left <laughs> <laughs> That didn't happen. I don't know if I was supposed to do that. I'm sure there's some sleuths out there that have dealt with natural gas. They might have some tips for me. But that was a weird thing this morning. Hey, this um, this kid Daniel Schmidt, who's awesome from the University of Chicago. He's a fighter. He's coming up next.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Heya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. <laughs>
2: phoenix and rhode island jam like you're all in the same garage get cox internet powered by fiber with america's fastest download speeds it's internet built for tomorrow today cox always building better cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection speeds vary and are not guaranteed cox terms and other restrictions may apply analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data fixed median download speeds usq3 2023
5: this is tony kornheiser show i'm tony we expected someone else My next guest was on the air with us previously. I noticed that he had a tweet that went out that said this. Exclusive at my college, University of Chicago class, the problem of whiteness will be taught in the winter. Since I began college a year ago, I've documented all the anti-white hatred I've seen on campus. Without a doubt, this is the most egregious example. And Daniel Schmidt was a guest on the show talking about that. And there's been an interesting development in this particular story. And he's back with us this afternoon. Daniel, how are you? Welcome back to 97.1 FM Talk. How are things going? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, this is not quieted down. So the professor that, and I want to, before we get all to the responses here, maybe explain a little bit more about this class and what's happening. But the professor, Rebecca Journey, has responded to you in kind, hasn't she? (laughs) Something (laughs) like that. Yeah,
4: so basically the rundown is a few weeks ago, I noticed there was a class planning on being taught at my university, the University of Chicago, called The Problem of Whiteness. And, I mean, this class is just chock full of just the most egregious anti-white stuff imaginable. It calls whiteness a problem. It says white people are basically a construct and not even real people. I mean, it's just egregious. So I put out a series of tweets about this course a few weeks ago. The tweets went very viral. Thanks to people like you for having me on your show. And the professor got a lot of negative emails, emails pushing back. And now she's basically accusing me of terrorizing her, of terrorizing the campus. She wrote this lengthy opinion piece in my school newspaper, and she basically concluded by saying, my tweets may inspire a, quote, armed white nationalist to shoot her up and her students up. So that's the sort of, that's the state we're in, and interestingly enough, my school has refused to punish me, and she is demanding my school punish me. So she's totally on the far extreme, and she's getting mad at not just me but her own employer and saying her, her the school needs to do more to basically silence me and shut me up.
5: So it, it, she says now— Did you say at one point that the—I can't remember some of the timeline here—that the class was, in fact, canceled? Because she says, contrary to the students' proclaimed, quote-unquote, victory, my class was not, in fact, canceled. I made the call to move it to the spring quarter precisely because of his cyber harassment campaign— which placed a target on my body and therefore on my classroom. And let me read a little bit more about what she wrote, Rebecca Journey. She goes, in this discussion, I want to pull focus on where it belongs. On the torrent of abuse, this harassment campaign is incited. I won't spend time here characterizing the 146 and counting taunts and threats to my body, safety, and psyche that have flooded through my inbox since November 2nd. Read some of them for yourself in select screenshots published here. I want to ask instead how an institution avowedly committed to free expression, has come to condone its weaponization. So let me begin with a thought experiment. And this is what she says, Daniel. I want you to respond. She goes, had the student, you, reached out to me with concerns about my course, The Problem of Whiteness, I would have happily scheduled office hours to discuss them. During that meeting, I would have listened to his concerns and addressed them by elaborating far beyond the five sentences published in the course catalog. I would have clarified that the class is not about anti-white hatred or my personal problem with white people both of those statements are value judgments judgments which get in the way of critical inquiry i would have explained that critical inquiry involves the rigorous study of social problems problems which exert a shaping force on history and society grappling with such problems and the questions that flow for them even and especially sticking ones like race is essential to the pedagogical enterprise now if we would just stop there i think people would say okay Oh, that kind of makes maybe that makes a little bit of sense, her response, but it does not stop there, does it, Daniel?
4: <laughs> no, I mean, she basically says I should have talked to her, and she would give me all these examples of literature in the past that shows that what she's saying is not really new. But that's my very point that this is so ingrained and so pervasive at all universities that unless you call it out, unless you publicly make it aware. Nothing's ever going to change. So, yeah, I could have talked to her and she could have lectured me for 30 minutes. What would that have accomplished? I mean, the bottom line is this. If if there were a class called the problem of blackness, some leftist student at my school would have made a tweet, and the class would have instantly been scrapped, and I'm sure my school would have apologized, and there would be massive riots. I mean, let's just be honest. And something, like I always say, is conservatives need to be on the office. So, yeah, I could have talked to her and I could have been nice, but what would that have accomplished? Well,
5: but I mean- beyond that, here, here because what she wrote in, in her response is absolutely even more problematic, I think. And I want to read some of this because these are her words. Now, Daniel Schmidt, you're going to the University of Chicago. I'm just a, you know, a little radio guy here in St. Louis. I wasn't smart enough to go to a school <laughs> like that. So you'll have to explain what she's saying here. But she says, I would have then walked the student, you— as I would with any student, through what decades of careful scholarship on race and racism in the U.S. would have taught us. Whiteness, like any racial identity, has no basis in biology. It's a scientific and cultural fiction, a pigment of the imagination, if you like. It is, however, as historian George Lipsitz writes, a social fact created and continued with all too real consequences for the distribution of wealth, prestige, and opportunity. So, I don't even know what the hell she's saying there, honest (laughs) to God. You're going to have to help me because she says, look, the student, if he just came in, I would have explained how this is about, you know, racial issues that history has had to grapple with. But that's not what she says in the next paragraph. She basically says everything that we knew she was saying in the first place, that being white's the problem.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's the very point is you show that description to any normal person. They would say, what the actual heck is she saying? And that's the point is. You know, they have to use the most confusing, most mysterious language because at the end of the day, they know what they're doing is evil. They know what they're doing is sinister, but they want to mask it behind this academic, smart people jargon like, oh, you went to community college. You can't understand what we're talking about. And it's just so patronizing. It's so condescending. And, you know, I'm I'm just not going to put up with this anymore. It's, It's ridiculous.
5: Well, it is ridiculous. So I'm glad that the University of Chicago is not caving to her, you know, requests or demands that they punish you. Right.
4: Yeah, no. So they've actually stood up for me. They've actually refused to punish me because my school has a big emphasis on free speech. And at the end of the day, I'm exercising my free speech. And in return, she's saying that what I'm saying can inspire an armed white nationalist. So she's calling me a terrorist in her own words when I'm and it's funny enough, you know, I'm on a full right scholarship. I'm a first generation student. I don't think she would be talking about this if this were a black kid. But because I'm a white kid, she obviously has to express this, this animosity towards me. So, you know, it is what it is, but I'm not going to stop. You know, she can, she can lecture me all day long, but people clearly agree with me, right? I put out the oh. tweet. A lot of people are supporting what I'm doing, and so I really appreciate it that I'm not going to stop.
5: By the way, I, I think they would agree with you more if they read her damn response. I think that would, they, they would <laughs> double down on their support for you because it's so wacky what she, what she wrote in her response to you.
4: Of course. I mean, it's just evil. I mean, would she say this about any other students? I think at the end of the day, she is embarrassed that she got caught. I think she really is freaking out. And sorry, but if you're going to call a class called the problem of whiteness, I mean, sorry, you deserve to get called out.
5: I'm with you, Daniel Schmidt. Appreciate the update. Keep us posted, okay? Thank you so much, and please,
4: anyone listening, follow me on Twitter at real d schmidt. The word real, the letter d s c
5: h m i d t. Much more like this to come. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. I want to read a little bit more from Rebecca Journey because um, Daniel's read this, so he didn't need to hang on the line and, and listen anymore. But she goes on about how if if Daniel just would have reached out, she would have had this conversation and really educated him, taught him what he doesn't know, his ignorance, his racial ignorance. During this notional discussion, Rebecca Journey says I would have let the student know that there is a long there is a long scholarly literature on whiteness which he might find fascinating. As a primer, I would have steered him to the Peabody Award nominated series Seeing White, a podcast produced by the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. I'm sure that's a very conservative organization which I use as a teaching tool in my class. Then I would have introduced him to a wide-ranging literature or to the wide-ranging literature, from the foundational work of W.E.B. Dubois, Nella Larson, James Baldwin, to whom my course title pays tribute, as well as to the contemporary scholarships of Sarah Ahmed, Bell Books, and Shannon Sullivan. I would have urged the student to approach these texts with a generous eye, to reflect on his own sense of grievance and victimization, and to consider other habits of mind like intellectual curiosity and charity. I would have invited him to cultivate those habits in the seminar, see what these academics do, by the way, is they use a bunch of fancy words because they think they're smarter than the rest of us. So they have to throw in a bunch of fancy words that you might have to look up in the dictionary. She says, I would have encouraged him to bring his ideas to the table and be open to the seminar as a space of spirited deliberation. In short, I would have done my job. Let's go back to the title of this course, right? The title of this course is The Problem of Whiteness. And she made it very clear that in the course description that this... (laughs) This is uh, whiteness has a long functioned and an unmarked racial category, saturating default around against which non white or non quite others appear aberrant. This saturation has held wide ranging effects, coloring everything from the consolidation of wealth, power, and property to the distribution of environmental health hazards. So basically, and then it goes in recent years, whiteness has resurfaced as a conspicuous problem, conspicuous problem, conspicuous problem, sorry. I'm not smart enough, again, to read these words, within liberal political discourse. This seminar examines the problem of whiteness through anthropological lens, drawing from classical and contemporary works of critical race theory. There, that's all you need to know right now. There's what, that's what they're doing. And thank God the University of Chicago has decided that in its infinite wisdom, they're not going to go after Daniel Schmidt and let him do what he's doing because he's not doing anything wrong. And by the way, she acts like there's, and I would not support any threats of violence or anything that is nasty against Rebecca Journey, but she puts some of the, you know, the screen captures from things that people have sent to her and they're not that bad. Somebody says Rebecca Journey is the most dishonest, disgusting, degenerate, and deeply evil figures in public life. Well, that just seems like calling it like you see it. Yesterday afternoon when John Rooney joined me talking about Cardinal Glennon and the Tree Hope campaign, we had a great package that John offered up from the Cardinals, which involved four tickets to a game, um, bad practice on the field, a booth visit during the game with Ricky and John, and we got a lot of money for the kids at Cardinal Glennon. I have a pickleball party this afternoon. Also, um, the High Point has come in with a drive-in burger bar for 20 people, burgers and sliders, three sliders per person. So we're not going to take calls on that right now, but I'll open up the phone lines right after the top of the hour, and we'll see if anybody wants to take advantage of the pickleball party at Creepcore Racquet Club and also the burger bar. We have several items. That will offer up this week to raise money for the kids at Cardinal Glennon, trying to highlight some of the great things and the work that they do as well. I took part in what's called Glennon 101 just a few months ago, kind of getting hands-on. Well, they didn't let me touch anything. They let me watch the people who are hands-on, like our next guest, Christy Russell, who is from SSM Health, Cardinal Glennon, named the 2022 March of Dimes Lifetime Achievement recipient. You, Christy, have worked at Cardinal Glennon for how long now? Good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Just short of 45 years. 45 years all at Cardinal Glennon, too, right? Oh, Yes, all at Cardinal Glennon. That, that's, I mean, just in and of itself, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh,
7: yeah. It's, it's, been a, it's been a great career,
5: though. Well, congratulations on that, and congratulations on the, um, the Lifetime Achievement Award, and congratulations on the little dog who's, you know, barking in the background, too. Sorry about
7: that. No, that's that.
5: okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> I've got dogs at home as well. One of the reasons that we want to have folks like you on this week during the Tree of Hope campaign is really to— incentivize people to open up their wallets and be a little generous this time of year. You've seen these patients. You know, you've seen some of the magic that's been created by some of the great programs from the True Hope campaign. So you can't share all those over a 45-year career, but how would you motivate people to maybe be generous this week for SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital?
7: Um, You know, I think that Glennon is, um, you know, people talk about the Glennon factor, and I think that that's very real. The people that work there are very focused on the kids and their families. And I think that makes a huge difference for people that are going through hardships and, and difficult times with their, with their children. Um, you know, I witnessed, I, we actually, Colonel Glenn had the first neonatal transport team in Missouri. Uh, we had the first uh, uh, single room and ICU in Missouri. Uh, all of those things cost money and, um, know really benefit the patients but you know the money has to come from somewhere so i think that um you know whatever people can give would be great Um, my experience at cardinal Blendon is very very good
5: so the i want to talk about the NICU just a little bit i remember when my when my first child was born way back in 1997 um i remember just you know Pat. he was not born prematurely and we weren't in the NICU but I was you know near the NICU and I remember seeing all these pictures of these little miracles that were on the wall and this was you know 25 almost 26 years ago at this point and I remember having the impression that man it's amazing what they can do for for kids at this you know they're they're barely old enough to be, in many cases, not even to be out of the womb, right? But even since that time, the the advances in science have gotten so far, haven't they? I mean, it's really magical what these doctors can perform these days, and nurses, obviously.
7: Yeah, you're right. It's um, just the things that I've seen over my career, the changes in the patients that we've been able to save from, you know, maybe like a 30-week gestation baby now to 23 or 24-week gestation baby who can go home and... Um, you know, a lot of them go home and they do just very well. They, you know, they don't have problems. That's not to say everybody, every baby doesn't, but, you know, we've come so far with that. The other thing that Glennon does is the Fetal Care Institute, which, you know, we take care of those moms that have babies that have problems before they're born. So some of those things can be um, worked on before so that the um, actual um, problems with the child aren't as great as they would be without the fetal care institute.
5: And you know, and, and I've, I've mentioned this, you've seen this firsthand, not not that what patients and these children are going through, I don't want to minimize that, but sometimes I think you might be able to say that some of these programs that are funded by the True Hope campaign help these families that are stressed out maybe even more, the mom and dad in particular, right?
7: Exactly. Um, you know, I know that um, there's a, a support group for uh, m- moms and dads in the, uh, NICU, I know we've gotten money for music therapy that the music therapist works with some of the dads, you know, it's sometimes it's hard for, for men who are in, in the situation of having a really sick child to, uh, be able they don't know what to do. So I think, you know, some of the music therapy has really helped, um. You know, all of the therapies that kids get are very important. So, yeah, I think that the money is, is invaluable to uh, both the uh, patients and their families.
5: I've had, I've had we we're trying to get a hold of Kelly, who runs the music therapy program, and I had her on last year talking about this. In my mind, when I heard music therapy, I'm thinking of, you know, whatever recorded music, popular music might be out there trying to inspire kids. That's not exactly what they do, right? I mean, they're, they're making mm-hmm. some of their own music. It's really, really unique, isn't it?
7: right right uh they help they do help um some kids write music so you know if they're particularly like kids that are have um uh, significant diagnosis like cancer and that kind of thing it helps them to write some of those things down and then sing them which you know helps with <coughs> sorry <coughs> with the um um expressing their 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 worries and all that about the disease um, like I said, we had a, a project that we had the dads learn to play the ukulele, uh, the patients in the NICU, and then they could sing to their to their child in the NICU, and that was a huge success, and uh, people really liked that. Uh, having music, even for like the neonatal patients or like the critical care patients, you know, helps them relax and and um, get better faster. So yeah, the music therapy program is really an excellent program and and that's grown a lot um I know there was one therapist for a while and now I think there are a couple i I haven't. I haven't been there. Yeah, they in have more, I know
5: that they have more than Kelly because I was in there for yeah, Glennon 101, yeah. taking part in, in, you know, seeing yeah. a little bit hands on what they do there in right. that particular department. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on here, Christy, this afternoon. Congratulations on the award from the March of Dimes. 45 years. No plans to retire? I got to ask that after all these oh, years. Oh no, right? no, no.
7: I I have actually retired. Oh, you have
5: at this point? Okay. Uh,
7: yeah, I'm retired. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I'm sort of relieved by that because I think you've you've put in your time, haven't you?
7: Yeah, I've actually been retired since January 2020. So,
5: Well, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on that as well. And I'm just a little jealous okay. about that. Thank you, Christy. I appreciate it. <laughs>
7: All right, All right take
5: care. Yeah, we have these items. So, we'll, you know, th- that's what this money goes for, music therapy and some of the other great things that they do at Cardinal Glennon. So keep your uh, ears pinned if you're interested in the pickleball party. I'll open up the phone lines after the top of the hour. I, I think the drive-in burger bar sounds amazing from the high point. With 20 people, uh, burger slider bar delivered, three sliders per person. We'll um, give you more details on that in the next hour. Coming up also in the next hour, we don't have Sue this week. She's off, but Amy Marks is going to pitch it with some – Amy's News. Alex Rich will be here with Hayes from Y98. We always kind of visit with them on Wednesday afternoon. The St. Louis County Council battled over the budget in St. Louis County last night. Mark Carter from the council is going to join us. Oh, I have Steve Forbes. This is a good day because inflation is still running out of control. Steve, good friend of the show for many, many years. Of course, you might remember back in the day he ran for president. He's the chairman of Forbes Media. He wrote a book called Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, How to Fix It. The markets have been relatively good this week until today when Jay Powell raised the Rates yet again. And then John O'Leary is going to join me this afternoon. We're going to kind of circle back to the Tree Hope campaign. He has written a book called In Awe. He served as the chaplain at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital for three years. And of course, if you don't know John's story and how he was almost killed when he was playing with fire when he was a kid back in the 1980s, Jack Buck was involved in that story, went and visited John in the hospital. He made a miraculous recovery. He's one of the best motivational speakers out there. And he'll join us here in uh, the five o'clock hour plus an audio. Cut of the day. Uh, A few other things that I wanted to highlight here. I saw this story this afternoon. Dave Strom was on last night from Hot Air, and I think that this is somewhat relatable here in St. Louis because we'll talk about this with Steve Forbes as well. Climate change, and I highlighted this editorial or this op ed from the LA Times yesterday where somebody basically admitted, yeah, you know what, EVs aren't going to cover it because EVs, you still have to power. The plugs, where you plug the cars and the trucks in. So the suggestion, and this is being serious, I'm not even making this up, was we need more bicycles and public transportation. So let's use Minneapolis as an example. We hear this about St. Louis with Metrolink and the expansion all the time. That's died down quite a bit because we don't have uh, the money. But they have this big boondoggle, and that's what Metrolink has essentially been here in St. Louis for, what, going on three decades, right? They have the Southwest LRT project. It connects downtown Minneapolis with the suburbs, which is what they kind of wanted to do here, you know, on Highway 40. And it's, um, as Dave describes, it's never been the favorite of the Tonier sort of people. They love light rail except when it comes through or to their neighborhood. And this is a project. There's lessons here for the whole country. L.A. has offered some lessons along these lines, too. California is a mess because they always like these programs, They're feel-good programs. And then they they cost astronomical amounts of money. So this is a 14-mile-long route. That would be about, I mean, I'd have to do the math just a little bit. What would the mileage be between downtown St. Louis and Chesterfield? Probably about that length, right? Somewhat similar. We can do it. I can probably map it here in just a minute. So there's a budget gap. It's a $2.7 billion light rain project, but they were $200 million that they were trying to come up with. So they met and they infused it with $211 million, and that's still not enough. So you're looking at right now, Dave Strom did the math here, one hundred ninety million dollars a mile, one hundred ninety million dollars a mile for light rail in Minneapolis. The typical lane of highway, even if you're renovating I-70 from here to Kansas City, is going to be one to two million dollars a mile. That sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. One hundred ninety million a mile. What's it in the name of? Oh, Solving climate change. Right. That's what it's always about. It's one point one billion over budget. $1.6 was the original budget. $2.7 is the new budget, and they still don't have enough.
3: Get more at 971talk.com.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Haya. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it.